It is my absolute pleasure to welcome a dear friend, a prolific author, speaker, angel investor, advisor, philanthropist, Mr. Chris Yeh, uh, who is coming from uh, Palo Alto, from Silicon Valley, to India for the very first time, not only to opine on what blitzscaling actually means for startups, but really to actually glean information and, and knowledge about what's going on here in India. So it's, it's an absolute pleasure and honor to host Mr. Chris Yeh. Thank you so much, Mahajit. For all uh, who, who may not know you, I mean, I know you as a, as a friend, a prolific author, speaker, entrepreneur, angel investor, but it would be great to uh, get started perhaps by you taking us through your journey and what has brought you here to Blitzscaling and beyond. So I have a classic Silicon Valley background in the sense that I grew up somewhere else. So I was actually born and raised in Southern California. And then I went up to Silicon Valley for the first time when I went to attend Stanford as an undergrad. And I studied product design and creative writing. So I was always very interested in trying new and different things. But I didn't go through college thinking I would someday be involved in the startup world. I had no idea about anything in the business world. It was only after I graduated and started working in the startup world that I really began to gravitate towards technology. So after graduating, I worked for D.E. Shaw and Company, which is the secretive hedge fund that Jeff Bezos was actually employed by before he started Amazon. Sadly, he had left about 18 months before I got there. Otherwise, my life might be very different. Who knows? Not necessarily better, but different. Right. But I got involved with D.E. Shaw in order to do startup projects. And so I've been involved in the startup world since 1995, whether as an entrepreneur or as an advisor or investor. And now today as an author chronicling how things work around the world. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here in India. There's so much incredible growth happening here in India. There's so many incredible companies that are being started that I really wanted to come and see it for myself. Fantastic, fantastic. And one of the things you know, that I really admire about you is, is the fact that you give of yourself and give your time, um, whether it's in nonprofits that you're involved with or a couple of uh, you know, platforms that we have gotten to know each other through, uh, one of them being Unreasonable and, and the other being the Women's Startup Lab. So again, it's an honor to, to have you here in India. And as, as I was saying earlier, uh, I hope it's the first of many such, uh, such trips to come. The, the, the latest thing that has actually put you on the, on the world stage is obviously a brilliant book uh, that you co-wrote with uh, Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn and Greylock fame. Uh, so maybe give us a, a little bit of insight into what brought about Blitzscaling and then we'll get into what I call the do's and don'ts of Blitzscaling, especially for an audience in India. But perhaps you can start with you know, what got you and Reid uh, to actually write this book. So the genesis of the book really dates back to around 2015 or so. We had written our first book, The Alliance, which is a New York Times bestseller. Definitely go out and pick it up. Yep. Uh, but we were trying to figure out what our next book was going to be about. During that time, what we noticed is companies in Silicon Valley, but also around the world, were growing faster than ever before. Companies like Facebook went from a dorm room to one of the world's most valuable companies in about a decade. And that's something that was really unprecedented. And so we wanted to try to understand the phenomenon. And the reason is that a lot of people would talk about, oh, we're in the unicorn era or all these companies are being started, but they wouldn't have an explanation for why it was happening now and what were the best ways to do it successfully. So we spent a bunch of time looking at companies that we felt had scaled into iconic global leaders in a very short period of time, talked to the individual investors, entrepreneurs, executives who were at those companies and tried to extract the lessons into blitzscaling to be able to say, 
This is what is behind this phenomenon. Here's why it's so important, and here's how you can do it. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So, um, you know, one of the things that having been in, in, in the venture industry for, for some time, uh, I have sort of a philosophy on, on investing, and it, it boils down to what we used to call back in the garage days, the three T's and the M's. It's basically team, technology, traction, and market. Team, the first and foremost. So I really want to spend uh, quality time understanding what you learned in terms of what is the DNA of the individual or individuals behind these blitzscaling companies? Is it something that is innate? Is it something they're born with? Or is it something that they can actually acquire either over time or through advisors, mentors, etc.? So what are some of the, the key findings, if you would, uh, around the team that actually makes, uh, makes this happen? So that's an excellent question because the team is 100% one of the main drivers of success. And the reason is that blitzscaling is a very unnatural, unintuitive activity. So when blitzscaling, what you're doing is you're focusing on speed over efficiency, even though the environment is uncertain. And you're doing that so that you can achieve a position of enduring market leadership in a winner-take-most market. So it's very hard to do this. It's not something you get taught in business school. It's not something you're taught in college. It's something you have to learn. And that gets at the heart of what needs to happen for someone to be a successful blitzscaler. The core thing they need to be is what we call an infinite learner. Someone who has the capacity to understand that as they're growing their company, things are changing so quickly that they're literally managing a different company from year to year. Things have changed so much, so many people have come in, so many things have changed in the market that they have to be able to constantly learn the new rules that apply and then be able to apply those to the business. So what we look for in an entrepreneur or anybody at one of these blitzscaling companies is the ability to learn over and over again. The other thing they need is the ability to tap into the network of people around them. No one's able to grow a company on their own. Jeff Bezos did not make Amazon one of the world's most valuable companies by himself. He did it by being able to build a network of people around him, people like Andy Jassy who runs Amazon Web Services. And these folks have been able to come in and really help him do these things. A lot of this is based around developing relationships informally, but it's also based around the ability to really figure out what it is that you need, what's gonna complement you, and go out and get the people who are gonna do that. One of the interesting things that you talk about in the book is going from, you know, again, this concept of uh, a tribe to a village to, you know, and beyond uh, as, as the company blitzscales and this notion of going from generalist to specialist. Yes. Right? How in the world do you know when is the right time and, and how do you balance that, let's say, the generalist to specialist transition with this sort of infinite learning capacity? Because at that point, you know, as a specialist, that is your your vertical, your function, your role. Um, so, so aren't the two sort of slightly contradicting or, or, or in tension with each other? Yes, there are a lot of tensions, paradoxes, things that you really have to navigate carefully when you're blitzscaling. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we talk about is, of course, that there are different stages of blitzscaling, and we do it based on the size of a human group. So we begin with the family, then the tribe, then the village, then the city, then the nation. And as you are growing, what you'll notice is the nature of the organization changes. A family is almost completely informal. Uh, I haven't actually gone to visit your home and see your kids recently, but I don't believe you have a monthly family board meeting where there's an agenda and people <laughs> have a proxy vote or something like right. that. That's probably not what you do. We run our families in a very informal way, and that's how companies start off. It's a couple of friends in a garage. But as the company grows, that kind of organization no longer works. And so when you get to the size of a village, which is, say, over 100 people, 
you don't just sort of say, well, there's nobody in charge. You say, well, we have a head person in the village and we have these village elders and here's this council. So a whole process of becoming more formal and more structured. And a big part of that is, as you point out, the transition between generalists and specialists. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is that generalists and specialists provide very different things. A generalist provides adaptability. Generalists can do a lot of different things. They can switch rapidly. And this is really important as a company is pivoting and changing in order to find success. Uh, one of the companies that my co-author, Reid Hoffman, was involved with as a founding board member and later an executive is PayPal. And that's a company which is obviously enormously successful, worth over $100 billion today. But during its early history, actually pivoted four times in a single year. Hmm. Now, it pivoted from ultimately a cell phone encryption company to a payments company via email. Now just imagine if you just hired a bunch of people whose specialty was just cell phone infrastructure, how useful they would be when you were an email payments company. Not very. So you need to have those generalists who have the ability to jump into whatever gap comes up and be able to help that company get to the next stage. But as the company grows, you are gradually reducing the amount of uncertainty and the company becomes clear about what it's doing. At that point in time, having specialists who are really tightly specialized in the specific area is going to help. One of the examples we give, which is very relevant for companies in India, is the notion of having someone who is an internationalization or globalization specialist. There are people who just go from company to company at that stage, helping them figure out their strategy for going around the world. Now that's something where, again, a smart generalist could probably figure it out, but why not bring in the person who's done it three or four times very successfully in the past. Mm -hmm. And so what you're really doing is you're looking at the problem area that the person is going to be working in and asking yourself, okay, how certain is this area? If there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of change, a lot of adaptation that needs to happen, you want a generalist. But if it is very certain and you're really focused on scaling, you're really focused on efficiency, then you want to have a specialist. And companies, by the way, will continue to have that balance of generalists and specialists as they grow. A company like Amazon or Microsoft is absolutely enormous, and yet these companies will still have significant portions of generalists who are working on new initiatives, who are helping them figure out, okay, how are we going to tackle and take on this new area? Very interesting. By the way, one of the things that you did bring up, so, so thank you very much, is, is globalization. And, and one of the, the theses for, for Iron Pillar, for example, and the reason I sit in Silicon Valley, is specifically to build that bridge between India and the US. And what's amazing to us is to see you know, young kids, young entrepreneurs actually having this aspiration of being global companies and world-class global companies and, and right after they get seeded or do their Series A, end up actually moving to where the market is in the US, for example, or Silicon Valley. So it's a, it's a very, very interesting point. Here's another, another piece which sort of pivots a little bit to, um, I guess, the market or the overall sort of economic conditions that provide the impetus or catalyst for this blitz scaling. So one could make the argument that really post the, the, the global financial crisis, right? We've been in this sort of bull run where plenty of venture capital is available and, and you're sort of riding this massive wave. So, so that's a period of time uh, that really helps in this blitzscaling era, if you will, right? Is that what is a prerequisite? Because again, you're dealing with raising a lot of capital. Um, and so the capital has to be available. You, you have to have the right teams, again, as you make these these transitions, so there are a lot of prerequisites. Uh, would you say that you need sort of that that upturn in, in overall economic uh, you know condition locally or globally to actually ha have blitz scale happen, or uh, it can happen even in let's say a downturn, and you can you can actually use that to your advantage? So blitz scaling can definitely occur in both up markets and down. 
But of course, I think most people prefer the up markets because at that point is when you have the big outcomes, when you have the big IPOs and M&A and so on and so forth. But the thing to remember about blitzscaling is its purpose. So you're focusing on speed in order to achieve a market leadership position. You're basically running a race. You're sprinting against your competitors. And it's a race that's relative, not absolute. So there's an old saying, hmm. two friends are in the woods, they encounter an angry grizzly bear, and one friend reaches down and begins tying his shoes so that he can run. And the second friend says, what are you doing? We can't possibly outrun that grizzly bear. And the first friend says, I don't have to outrun the grizzly bear, I just have to outrun you. Right. <laughs> now, I don't know whether that first person was really a good friend or not, right. but <laughs> right. the point is that in blitzscaling, what you're doing is you're sprinting, trying to achieve a great enough distance over your competition such that the market dynamics make you the enduring market leader. Oftentimes this is network effects or some form of lock-in. During downtimes, you can sprint ahead of your competitors by moving more quickly and more aggressively than them, even though you might be moving more slowly than you would during a boom time. Similarly, during a boom time, you may be growing at 100% a year, but you might be falling behind your competitors because they're growing at 200% a year. And if you look at the history of many of these great blitzscaling companies, a company like Facebook, for example, was founded after the dot-com bust. Uh, companies like Airbnb, for example, had their early growth after the global financial crisis. So it's certainly possible to grow and build amazing companies regardless of the economic conditions. What you have to remember is it's relative and you have to be in a winner-take-most market where you can outdistance the competition. There's often a lot of comparison, for example, between China and India, right? So China has their Alibaba, Baidu, C-Trip, Tencent, etc. because there isn't the, the competition from the trillion dollar giants. In a geography like, uh, like India, for example, you know, Facebook of India is Facebook and Google of India is Google and so on. So how do you uh, think about, let's say, emerging markets or, you know, markets like India where uh, the, you know, the, the foreigners have come with independently sort of deep pockets and you've got, you know, young kids who are trying to compete and I don't know if similar situation existed with an Airbnb or an Uber or a, uh, you know, other examples that you use in the, in the book, but just your, your thought process around this David Goliath um, you know, uh, battle that, that often ends up happening in, in markets that are, that are recognized and that are there rather than new markets that are being created. So one of the important things, and you sort of touched on it, because what's interesting is if you look at the Indian market, you have companies like Facebook, where the Facebook of India is Facebook. But then you have companies like Amazon, where the Amazon of India is not Amazon. It might be, say, uh, Flipkart, for example. And so what's happening is that the market conditions themselves help determine the outcome. When we look at India, when we look at China, one of the things I see, and we, this came up in our research in, all around the world, is that the early players had to build a lot of their own infrastructure. If you think about the United States, when somebody comes out and they build a new company, they say, well, we're going to tap into the credit card processing network, we're going to have Stripe, we're going to have UPS, we're going to have FedEx, and so much of the work is already done for you, and so a lot comes down to executing more aggressively than other people. It may be a little bit slower to, in a market that is not quite as well developed, uh, have to build your own infrastructure, but that actually becomes an even stronger competitive moat. And we saw conditions where a company like Alibaba might be relatively slower growing earlier on, but then because it is truly dominant in its market and has the infrastructure to boot, it then begins to grow at an accelerated rate over time. The same holds true in India, the same holds true in Latin America, for example, if you look at a Mercado Libre, where they've had to produce so much of their own infrastructure. So if you're an entrepreneur in an emerging market, like India, where you're looking around, 
you know, don't gravitate towards something like Facebook, where there is essentially zero infrastructure. There's zero difference between being in India and being in the United States for the majority of people who are using it. Although perhaps there's some uh, interesting angle around the lines of working with a geo and using feature phones instead of smartphones. But instead, look to places where you have the chance to build your own infrastructure, where the big players coming in from outside don't understand the market well enough, don't have the ability to really build that infrastructure out. They're going to come in with the wrong set of assumptions. And that gives you the chance to, again, get that head start in that sprint. Very interesting you say that because, uh, you know, when e-commerce, for example, took off in India and, and Flipkart arguably was one of the first ones, if not the first ones, to, to enter the market or establish the market, uh, payments and logistics were the drivers, right, for, for e-commerce. And so that's precisely what the early movers in the space had to do. That simply did not exist, and not at a scale uh, where you could actually build, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. So interestingly enough, while there are specialist sort of logistics companies and obviously a lot of innovation happening in India on in the fintech and, and, and payment space, uh, Flipkart itself, by the way, built their own logistics and, and, and payments infrastructure to just build those rails that they could, uh, they could ride. It's a very, very interesting point. How do you avoid, uh, you know, what I call the, the, the WeWork yes. fiasco, right? Yes. So uh, you could call it the, the, the soft bank phenomenon that, that has sort of taken over the, the world, it seems like. And, and Masa-san has come to India in a massive way. I mean, he's put billions of dollars to work. Is there a downside to blitzscaling, which is grow at any cost, uh, by any means necessary, and then you end up falling flat? Um, is that, you know, what can we learn, I suppose, from, from something like that? So that is so important because I think far too often, whether it's in the world of entrepreneurship or the world of venture, people talk about pattern matching. And pattern matching basically just says, it looks like that, so let's do the same thing. And to me, pattern matching is too shallow. You have to look beneath the surface and ask yourself, why do these patterns match and what about this pattern has made it successful? And again, this is not a criticism of Masa-san who has made and lost and made and lost and made more money than you or I will ever touch in our lifetimes and has affected billions of people around the world. But when you just sort of say, we're going to take the same technique that has worked elsewhere and apply it just generically market to market, that's not necessarily going to work. WeWork is a classic example of a company that has applied the principle of let's grow as quickly as possible. Let's build a dominant franchise. The question is, is there a reason for them to do that? So we talk about there being winner take most markets where basically if you become the market leader, you have a, a sustainable competitive advantage that makes it almost impossible for anyone to displace you or even compete with you. If you look at WeWork, you have to ask yourself, where does that sustainable competitive advantage come from? WeWork rents offices and spruces them up and then rents them out. It's just a very simple, straightforward real estate play. And is there a way for them to have a network effect or lock-in? Well, the answer is not really. There is a minor effect in the sense that if they have the most locations around the world, it's slightly easier for them to sell to the Accentures of the world, where, which are global companies. But the majority of the business is still local. It's people who are looking for a place to work. And so as a result, there's no network effect there. Is there lock-in? Well, technically they have lock-in on the leases in their buildings, but I guarantee you, if you go to where our WeWork is, and we passed one on the road, the highway in, what do I see? I see the WeWork, I see another building to the left, and another building to the right. It's not like they can monopolize the office space in a particular country or even city. And so as a result, there's no real lock-in. And the mistake of WeWork was to say, we're gonna spend whatever it takes to achieve market leadership in a market where the market leadership doesn't actually matter. When it comes to blitz scaling, you are investing early on to grow quickly, 
so that in the long run you can operate and print money for several decades. And if you don't see a path to being able to be wildly profitable for decades to make up for the money you've spent up front, then all you're doing when you're trying to get big fast is just spending your investors' money. One of the concerns that, uh, that a lot of entrepreneurs here have, which is, you know, will I have capital and will I have investors who believe in the blitzscaling strategy to, for me to continue to push, right? This growth, winner take most, winner take all market, and you're trading off efficiency, which is not something that's natural to, to many folks. Is this, you would say, something that is innate, it's in the DNA of the individual to go for this blitzscaling strategy? Or is this, if it's unnatural, put it another way, that it is, if not bound to failure, then, then uh, you know, likely to fail, uh, if, if that's the case. So is it, is it uh, the DNA? Is it something you're born with or something you acquire? So here's what I think is interesting. I think that historically, it has been something that people are largely born with. But by laying out the science of this, I think it will increasingly be something that people actually acquire. So the core thing behind blitzscaling, I think that mo many of these companies that grew very aggressively in the past, grew aggressively simply because their founders were very aggressive. And their founders were going to go all out because that was their personality. Not because they had thought it through carefully and had a reason why going all out was going to help them win. They were just like, we're gonna go all out. We ride hard, we ride or die, that's, that's it. And so I think that one of the downsides in that sort of approach is that so many of these entrepreneurs who were highly aggressive and pursued this approach had another set of associated uh, personality characteristics, perhaps a lack of compassion, perhaps a tendency towards conflict that then resulted in cultures that were really unhelpful and in many ways damaging to employees. By being able to lay out the science of blitzscaling, giving people an understanding of the reasons why they would pursue it, I think we encourage people who don't have that natural over testosterone level of aggressiveness to say, you know what, this is the right strategy. It's not that I want to grow just because I want to beat my chest and be bigger than everyone else, but because it's the thing that's going to lead to our long-term success. And so my hope is that more and more people will grow into this as opposed to just having been born with it. Talk a little bit about markets that these blitzscaling companies typically go after. Does the market have to be there or do the companies actually create a market? I mean, one could make the argument that Airbnb, you know, was going after the hospitality market. The hospitality market was there, but uh, the entire notion of letting strangers into your home was a totally new concept. So how would you, how would you address the, the market question? So in looking at the market, you definitely can create a market. Now, you can't create a market out of thin air. Right? Everything that is a new market, as you put it, like hospitality, strangers staying in your home, is a subset of an existing market. But the key is being able to say, you know what, we're going to create a new market, and that new market may even be larger than the previous market that existed. So an example would be ride hailing. Ride hailing is essentially an expansion on the global taxi market. Before ride hailing occurred, the global taxi market was approximately $100 billion per year in revenue, globally. The ride hailing market is many times that because it's more convenient, it's less costly, people feel more comfortable with it, and as a result, the usage of ride hailing vastly exceeds the usage that taxis ever had. And that's a great example of a market that didn't exist, but got to be where it was by transforming an existing market. Interesting. By the way, one of the things that uh, you know, I always say when people come to India for the first time is the fewer the number of wheels, the faster you will go. And as a result, um, you know, there's, there's Ola, which is the Uber uh, equivalent here in, in India. 
but they and others have extended into three-wheelers and also two-wheelers. So there's sort of a boom in the two-wheeler uh, community as well. But your point is exactly right, which is, uh, you know, the market for mobility, people need to get from point A to point B. It's creating that efficiency, and by creating that efficiency, actually increasing the market. And, and the other thing that India does have going for it is, um, you know, migration from the rural to the urban or the semi-urban, right? So as more and more people move into the cities, mobility becomes a, a massive, you know, challenge and therefore an opportunity. And one of the key things for entrepreneurs is recognizing that opportunity before others do. If it's an obvious opportunity, then there's plenty of people who are going to be able to raise money right, and go after right. it. And that makes the job of becoming the market leader more and more difficult. You may still do it, but when you have many, many entrenched, well-financed competitors, it just becomes harder. It's a numbers game. Only one person could be the leader. So when you recognize in advance that things are going to happen, even if it sounds kooky, like letting strangers stay in your home or letting a stranger drive you around, the kookiness, the ability for people to say that's crazy, actually is what helps contribute to it being a blitz-scalable market. Now, shifting a little bit from, let's say, consumer-centric, so direct-to-consumer business, you know, B2C plays, perhaps to an enterprise software yes. or B2B market. Is there um, a, a propensity for, for companies to blitz-scale in one versus the other, or can they, can they do it on, on either side? Just given the, the nuances, of course, that are involved in, in growing either direct-to-consumer market or, or, or an enterprise-centric one. So there is this misperception people have that you can't blitz-scale in the enterprise, and that's completely untrue. There are definitely examples of blitz-scaling the enterprise. The reason people tend to overlook the ability to blitz-scale the enterprise is because it is often the case that enterprise software companies do not have the kind of massive distribution that consumer companies have. Uh, an enterprise software company, the default mode of growing an enterprise software company is to have a field sales division where you have a bunch of people that go out and call on customers and ultimately that's just not as scalable as virality or something like that. However, when enterprise software companies are able to tap into distribution, whether it's viral distribution or whether it's sitting on top of an existing network, all of a sudden they can grow extremely rapidly. So if you look at a company like Slack, which makes enterprise software, it's enterprise communication software, the reason it has been able to blitz scale is because the inherent virality of the product itself has allowed them to acquire customers via a freemium strategy in a way that resembles a consumer company in terms of its ability to grow quickly. So enterprise software companies, if they can tap into the same dynamics, can absolutely blitz scale. The other element, of course, is that remember, blitz scaling is relative. So if you are in a market where there is a reward for being the market leader, some sort of sustainable competitive advantage, as long as you're moving faster, you're getting closer to that blitz scaling market leadership position. And so in an enterprise software company industry, it might be that you could achieve a blitz scaling escape velocity by growing at 100% a year when the rest of your competition is growing at 25% a year, even if that would be nothing to sneeze at in a consumer company. You know, we had uh, at Iron Pillar done an analysis of the Indian unicorns. Yes. Okay, so uh, when we published back in November, there were 30. Now I think there are up to 32. So it seems like there's one being created roughly on a monthly or every other month basis. And what's really interesting is that's, that there's almost an even split between B2C and B2B. And yes. on the B2B side, there are B2B India companies. Uh, as, and so that's India for India, it's companies that are going after the Indian market. And there are global enterprise SaaS companies. Yes. And what's also interesting is the phenomenon that, that they are being created faster. So my, my gut says that many of them have actually read your book over the past you know, couple of years and said, okay, let's put this into, into action. 
but do you anticipate, um, given the experience that these companies, let's say in India or, or Indonesia or Latin America, are gaining in terms of scaling businesses, that they can actually uh, compete head-on with the global giants? Do you think they can go head-to-head with you know, folks in, in, in Silicon Valley? Is there a leverage, perhaps, that they have in terms of a lower cost of, of product development and so on that you know, the young kids in, in South of Market or Silicon Valley should be, should be worried about? So it absolutely is the case that blitzscaling is becoming more common around the world. Uh, it still absolutely happens the most in Silicon Valley and China, but it is spreading everywhere. And again, 20 years ago, we would not have even mentioned China in that equation. Uh, the major advantage is, of course, the human capital and financial capital. So Silicon Valley has a financial capital advantage in the sense that there is a lot of money available for investment, and a human capital advantage in the sense there are a lot of very experienced people. But in a market such as India, you have a human capital advantage in the sense that the number of qualified people is much larger on an absolute scale than in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is a tiny place, about four million people in population. That's a tiny fraction of just Bangalore. And then, on the other side, the cost of living. In Silicon Valley, we now are at the point where engineers are being hired and paid at an entry level $150,000 to $200,000 per year, US. And I can't quite do the math on rupees, but the number is astronomical. Right. And the cost of living is astronomical. All of these things are astronomical. So if you have an enterprise software company where a big part of it is building a major engineering team, and another big part of it is having a services organization that is able to manage those accounts and grow them over time, there's actually a big advantage in being able to do so in a place that's lower cost. Uh, in the United States, there are a lot of companies that actually have major sales organizations based out of Chicago in the middle of the country. Even though Chicago is still an expensive place, it is very cheap in comparison to Silicon Valley, and there is more of that sales culture. So you can see that you know, there are advantages to different geographies regardless of what country they're in. You know, what's also interesting is, uh, thanks to uh, Jeff Bezos, is what I call the democratization of technology capital, right? So now that you have um, Azure, Google Cloud, AWS, of course, uh, you know, it doesn't matter where you're sitting, right? As long as you have that, that mind and mindset to be able to build a world-class product, you can do it not only in tier one cities, That's right. like Bangalore where we're sitting, what we are starting to see is an emergence of that technical talent in tier two and three towns, where the loyalty effect is far deeply, more deeply ingrained than it may be in a place like Bangalore where for another 10, 15, 20%, somebody may be looking to move. To a you know to a different uh, to a different company, so I think that is what gives us at Iron Pillar, for example, a lot of uh, confidence that that particular tsunami of, of innovation, not only for India for India, but really India for the globe, uh, is going to come from. And, and there are plenty of examples already uh, in in you know in place today. Just talk about the mistakes that that you think. Uh, entrepreneurs make when when they have their mindset on okay I've read the book this is the winner take most winner take all speed over efficiency you know I have my 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 family I'm going to my tribe or my village where do they falter is it capital is it team is it uh, understanding the market a little bit more more clearly uh, or is it a combination of all of the above so there are two things that I generally focus on the first is the team and culture side which is to say 
Because you're growing so rapidly at that stage, you have to somehow navigate the process of bringing in executives from the outside. And this is a big challenge because you have a team of people who very close-knit, have worked very closely together. Somebody perhaps is a founding employee or even a co-founder, they've run that function within the company for its entire existence. And now all of a sudden the company has tripled in size, quadrupled in size, 10 x in size, and that person no longer has the capability of managing that company. So that's a challenging transition. The other element of it, as they're thinking about it, is the fact that people have to understand the game is constantly changing. The metaphor we use is that at each stage as you grow, you end up playing a different game. First you may be playing checkers, then you may be playing chess, then you may be playing go, and so on and so forth. And they have different rules. And the mistake that people make is thinking to themselves that just because things worked before, they're always going to continue to work. Uh, one company, for example, I worked with where they prided themselves on the usability of their software. They're like, we're the most usable software, we're the most usable. And I challenged them on it. I said, well, you've grown your software, you've added all these different features, is it still usable? They're like, what do you mean? Like, well, measure it. What percentage of people come in, sign up for an account, and leave? And it turned out it was actually a very large number. But because the company had gotten this religious belief about itself, it was hard for them to let that go and say, okay, we have to change. So the fact is, your company is changing rapidly as you blitz scale, and you have to be willing to let go of the past, as they say in, in The Last Jedi and in Star Wars, and understand and, and take a very clear-eyed look at what's actually going on. Look to the evidence, look to the users, look to the metrics, and make cool, rational decisions. All right, so I ha have to ask you this. It yes. seems like you're big into gaming and, and, and you were on this sort of national TV show called Mental Samurai. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. How did you get involved and, and what was that experience all about? So I did in fact in 2019 appear on a television show called Mental Samurai hosted by Rob Lowe. And it was essentially a quiz show where in addition to asking questions and having to answer them, we were strapped into a robotic chair that would whirl us around between the questions. <laughs> the other thing was, uh, in order to win, you had to get every single question right. So if you missed a single question, you were eliminated. So this is what made it particularly challenging. Uh, the reason I went on the show is uh, I had actually applied for a different game show many years before, and the person who was the casting director who worked with me on that show remembered me. And her uncle was the creator of this new show, and she tipped him off, said, there's this guy in Palo Alto who might be good for your new show. So they reached out to me and said, would you be interested in auditioning? And I went through an audition process. Fortunately, these days, we're able to do all this via Skype and web conferencing instead of having to fly down to Los right. Angeles for it. And they told me I'd been cast, and they said, fly to Los Angeles on this date, and we'll shoot the show. That is awesome. That is awesome. Well, thank you so much for, um, for, for all your, in India, in Hindi, there's a term called gyan, which is tutelage, your, uh, you know, your teachings. And this has been enjoyable for me, and uh, I'm sure it'll be very, very uh, positive and fruitful for, for the audience as well. Thank you. No, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to coming back soon.